Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is Tuesday, September the 12th, 2023, uh, a Tuesday in which the government is starting its case, its antitrust case against Google. Lots of pressures on digital. We've done all sorts of shows on the problems, the challenges of the digital revolution. And yet, on the other hand, everyone still wants to transform themselves digitally. My guest today, David Rogers, who teaches at Columbia uh, Business School, um, calls himself uh, the world's leading expert on digital transformation. That may be true. Uh, he's the author of a couple of books, one called The Digital Transformation Playbook, um, and a new one that's out tomorrow or today, actually, The Digital Transformation Roadmap. And David is joining us from rural Connecticut. David, uh, to start off, congratulations on the new book. W what does digital transformation mean? Thanks very much, Andrew. It's a pleasure to be on the show. Um, digital transformation is the transformation of an established business to thrive in an era of constant digital change. That is the real challenge here. It's about really it's sort of three things and that I would sort of draw out of that, that definition. First is that digital transformation is actually about your business. Um, it's about your customers, your employees. It's not primarily about technology, right? Uh, second, it is about changing an established business, right? This is not about startups. This is about you already have an organization, product services, customer base, uh, business partners, go-to market, all these things, brand reputation in place, and you have to work with them and shift and change and adapt them. And that is really where all the sort of challenges tend to arise. Uh, and then thirdly, is that digital transformation is an ongoing, I would say, a continuous journey. It is not a project as many sort of CEOs set forth maybe with this wrong impression that has kind of a start date and an end date. We're going to sort of transform, kind of upgrade our, I don't know, our, our tech to the cloud or something. And then we're sort of done and we're kind of set for this digital era, uh, which would sort of assume that there had been kind of a wave, kind of a step change in technology around us, and then it was over. Uh, you know, okay, so the smartphones arrived, and once we kind of readapt our business model and our operations and, and our, and our uh, customer uh, relationships based around that reality, we're good. No, uh, things are not slowing down. Each new wave of technologies is sort of catalyzing the next one. And it's that accelerating pace of change in the digital era that organizations really struggle with and that transformation is meant to address. Yeah, I'm intrigued by the fact that uh, you, you say, and I'm quoting you, that digital transformation is not about technology. Are you suggesting then that digital is a frame of mind, a way of thinking? Uh, in, in some ways, in many ways, yes, uh, I, I think of it as it, it's what it requires is very much a mindset shift uh, in leaders, but also really through everyone throughout the organization. Um, but to me, the, the key idea of digital is we are in an era where change is accelerating at an incredible pace. And the fact is, it's, it's undeniable that these waves of new 
digital technologies. These are technologies that connect data to systems. Businesses, governments, individuals around the world are accelerating that change. And each one is sort of building on the next. So first we had the World Wide Web, and then we had things like e-commerce, and then we had streaming media and content, and then we had social networks, and then we had you know, smartphones. Now we're talking about the first major wave of AI, generative AI, uh, which would be predictive AI. And of course, now the newest one, we're kind of kicking off generative AI. So it keeps one, keeps building on the last. Each of these are sort of foundational digital technologies. They are all taking data and systems and connecting them in radically different ways that create a lot of new potential and make a lot of business models and ways of working that we've known up to now uh, obsolete, uh, sometimes very quickly. Um, each one is feeding into the next. And the cumulative effect is that they demand absolutely a different mindset from us individually, but also a different way of building and managing and leading our organizations so that the way we build organizations in the 20th century just does not keep up with this pace of change. You mentioned the 20th century, David. Um, before digital, there was the analog world, the industrial analog world, the world of the 20th century. But wasn't that also a world of dramatic change back then? People oh, were still complaining, <laughs> oh, everything's changing. We, we have to continually reinvent ourselves. Why is this different? Yes. Uh, it may have been Herodotus. I forget the Greek philosopher who, who, who first wrote that uh, uh, the only thing constant is change. So I, I don't want to say that the world was sort of static before the current era. Um, what I would point to is, again, looking at organizations, the model that arose for larger established businesses actually arose out as sort of the command and control top-down management model, uh, which is what worked in the industrial era. And the industrial era allowed building to much bigger scale, uh, capitalist institutions, also governments and other organizations um, that were able to operate in many locations, serving many, many customers or stakeholders or citizens, if you will. And at that point, the best sort of trade-off was an organizational model that was about controlling from the top and giving sort of marching orders down and using measurement to sort of effectively understand what was going on everywhere in the organization and everything sort of new or departure from, from the standard a rule book required sort of sign off at, at different levels. That's what this command and control process, it was first really sort of developed in the uh, U.S. military and then, of course, applied uh, these, these theories to all kinds of organizations. The challenge is that model is not able to absorb the kind of change, the pace of change, and, and deliver the agility that we need in organizations today. And so we see larger businesses in the digital era taking a different approach. It is more about pushing decision-making down, is more about empowering every sort of team and unit and subunit of the organization to take more action because they're aligned on the outcomes we're trying to achieve, but they they're not waiting for sort of marching orders from above. It's kind of the difference between, you know, from a military point of view, the way that the, the Russian military has been running its campaign uh, uh, in Ukraine versus the Ukrainian military, which is more of a modern uh, military in terms of its training and management, puts much more authority, initiative, and independence in the units on the ground themselves. They're not waiting for orders from Moscow every single step they have to take on the battlefield. And you see, as a result, the asymmetry uh, on the one hand, the Russian army is much larger. On the other hand, uh, the Ukrainian army has been much more agile and, and nimble. 
Same thing happens in business. Yeah, it's funny you mentioned the military side. Last night I went to my local movie house, Alamo, uh, mm-hmm. in San Francisco, and uh, they were showing Doctor Strange Love, which is the classic, wow. of course, yeah. parody of top-down military yes. authority, which literally and symbolically blows itself up. Yes. Are you suggesting then, David, and, and, and there's a great deal of debate about this, particularly in the age of multi-trillion dollar companies like Google, which are now being sued by the government on, on the antitrust front, um, are you suggesting that the digital revolution is resulting in more democracy, at least in a corporate sense? Um, you could, uh, I guess you could make an analogy. You could call it democratic. Uh, I, the term I use is bottom-up versus top-down organizations. Um, and the distinction is not that, let me be clear, a bottom-up organization that's able to operate at speed like this is not an organization where there's sort of no hierarchy and everybody kind of does their own thing. Um, you still have leadership and authority and divisions and lines of business and so forth. But the difference is, again, where decisions are made. Uh, and by default, what you want to do is to have decisions made at the lowest level possible. This is really in companies like Google and Amazon, other sort of digital native businesses that have managed to stay relatively uh, speedy as they operate at scale, is that they do push decision-making down or to the lowest level for any given decision. And what that means is that ideas are able, so that's the first point. The second is you want an organization where ideas and input and learning come from the bottom up and from the outside in. So they are set up, a lot of traditional organizations are really bad at this, at sort of learning what's happening in the market, learning what's happening on the front lines, learning what's happening in the world of customers uh, really in the moment. Whereas you have people in the organization who are there who can tell you this. Uh, and then the third thing uh, uh, is ideas, innovation, new initiatives should be coming from every level, should initiate, should start at every level of the organization. So if you're working on a digital strategy, of course, you want to have the CEO, maybe the head of marketing, the head of you know business units. They should be thinking about big picture ideas, about what are the strategic problems that need to be solved, what are the opportunities for growth. But as they sort of spell out that vision of kind of what are we really focused on currently? They need people within, you know, the supply chain team in Vietnam, within the, you know, marketing team in Latin America, within the team that's building one app uh, for a segment of the market of that c- company. All these different teams, they need to have the initiative to then say, okay, how do I translate this strategy? What do we need to be doing? What's the opportunity I see on the ground right now where we are? And they're generating ideas. So, I mean, you could call it more democratic. It's certainly more engaging. Um, I see a lot of organizations struggle because they have a lot of resources and assets, and maybe they have locked in, you know, customers and, and sort of renewable revenue. But their own talent is kind of disengaged because their job is very much sort of constrained and hemmed in and sort of waiting for a sign off and what others can tell them what to do. We certainly see this in the public sector, and it's what holds back innovation in a lot of, you know, governmental functions. Um, versus organizations where people have more ownership of the work that they are specifically working on and are empowered to take more action, to push things forward uh, and to drive you know, innovation and new models to be brought to the fore and tested uh, in their own part of the organization. Uh, David, as I said, your new book is just out, um, The Digital Transformation Roadmap. You're also uh, 
the author of a best-selling book, The Digital Transformation Playbook. I want to talk more specifically about both books uh, after the break. But um, are your books written for the people at the bottom or the people at the top? Uh, I'm guessing that the people at the bottom rather like your arguments. The people at the top might be a little bit more resistant because they don't want to give away all their power and authority. Hmm. Uh, so the books, to answer the first question, the books are definitely written for both. Uh, They're meant to be very practical. There's a lot of case studies of companies in different industries who are successfully actually driving real transformative change and creating new value through digital technologies in their sector, whether it's an industrial manufacturer or a retailer or a professional services firm or an insurance company or a bank. Um, but the tools and, the, and then the other thing about the tool, the book trying to be books, both books trying to be practical is they have sort of planning tools. How do you take these ideas and actually put them into place in your organization? They are all designed to be usable at any level of the organization. So the writing is very much for people at the top, at the middle, at the bottom, at every stage. Uh, but it's a different question. I absolutely agree of, you know, which leaders are kind of ready to embrace this different kind of organizational model and which ones are going to feel or do feel very uncomfortable and fear it because they misperceive it as a loss of authority uh, uh, and loss of sort of power and influence on their part. We are talking with David L. Rogers, the author of The Digital Transformation Roadmapper. Dave, we're going to take a short break. I want to remind everyone that our sponsor for this show, as many shows this month, is Liberties, a quarterly journal of culture and politics, excellent new publication. I'm going to run a short ad for Liberties, and then we'll be back with David Rogers talk and talk specifically about his new book. Beyond the news, the noise, there is nuance, insight. Liberties is not just a journal of ideas. It's a meteor of intelligent substance. It's the place to be for engaged citizens. Politics, opinion, substance. Liberties is a triumph for freedom of thought. A quarterly of urgency, of cultural exploration, of intellectual delight, of immaculate prose. It's invaluable. Subscribe now or find Liberties at your favorite bookseller. And you can check out more at libertiesjournal.com. We are talking with David L. Rogers, the author of The Digital Transformation Roadmap. Many of you will be familiar with him for his previous best-selling book, The Digital Transformation Playbook. I have to ask, David, uh, they look rather similar. One's blue, one's red for people That's listening right. to the covers. But what's the difference between these two books? Sure. This is, this is my fifth book, but it's my first sequel. So this was actually written specifically as a new book looking at the same problem from a different angle or a different side of the same problem. So the two books are really meant to go together. Uh, so what I mean by that is when I first started re writing and working in this area, and my work is a mix of, of advising companies uh, on these kinds of challenges directly with senior leaders, it's teaching at Columbia Business School, as you mentioned, where I get to interact with executives from all over the world, uh, and then my research and writing. And so when I first started working on this, this was you know a decade ago, um, looking at what came to be called digital transformation, what I saw was some companies were starting to recognize this, the challenge that digital was not about marketing or some particular function or a particular technology, but all these, this shift and the change was happening was going to require them to really rethink their business. And what I saw was companies were being held back because of that strategic mindset, I would call it. 
Um, so they were really thinking still about their business based on a set of tools that we had been honestly teaching in business schools for decades. Um, and whether or not you'd actually read Michael Porter and you know his 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 five forces or or uh, read about the four P's of marketing or some of these models that were around, they were sort of in the background and in the water, and it was probably what was guiding your thinking as a manager. Um, and frankly, those models were largely out of date in the digital era. So I wrote that book. It was actually the first book published on digital transformation. And I wrote that book to sort of help companies to learn to set aside these, this kind of old playbook of thinking and to rethink and reimagine their business and its opportunities for growth in the digital era. So that book looks at, it's a, it's a framework looking at how do we rethink our relationship to customers? How do we rethink and redefine competition? who we compete with in the digital era. It's no longer defined by your industry, for example. How do we think differently about data, the role of data in business? How do we rethink our approach to innovation? And uh, how do we rethink our value proposition as a business? So those five domains. So again, really about strategy. And my experience since then was quite interesting. I got a chance that book has been published by now in over, over a dozen languages. So it took me around the world interacting with lots of different companies. And what I discovered was as hard as it is to shift your strategic thinking and really sort of reimagine your business and where it could uh, go in the digital era with the new capabilities that are available to us, even when you want, even when you do that, when you make that mental shift and start to redefine your competition, your growth opportunity, et cetera, these established larger organizations, especially the sort of bigger and more complex they are organizationally, they struggle to actually change course. And so I kept seeing, observing, and, and, and working with what I would call the stymied CEO. So someone who says, I read your book, I, others, you know, I understand the need to change. We're thinking about new digital business models for the business. We're rethinking our, our, our approach to our customers. And yet they've made this a priority and they talk about it to their own employees and they set aside resources for it and the quarters go by and the years go by and they say, why are we moving so slowly? And it turned out that if I talk to executives today and I ask them what is hardest about digital transformation, nobody says anymore uh, technology. Nobody says anymore even uh, uh, money. It's, it's expensive and how do I get, get the, the cost for it? The answer I always get is some combination of organizational process and organizational culture. And that is what is making it so hard to drive this change in these established businesses. So that became really the focus of my work, my research, my advising and writing over the last several years, which led to the second book. So it's looking at the same challenge, but it's more about, okay, how do we, really I think of it this way as a formula, DX, digital transformation, DX equals digital strategy plus organizational transformation, right? The digital is really about a new playbook for strategy. The transformation is really about changing the organization itself. So that's the focus of the new book is how do we actually put these ideas into practice in an established organization at scale? Give me a couple of stories um, uh, um, about, uh, David, about uh, ways that one can and one should and shouldn't do this digital transformation. Probably, uh, I know you've done a lot of research with all sorts of big companies from 
Unilever, Procter and Gamble, and Toyota to Google, Microsoft, uh, and some of the other digital giants. Who's doing it really right? So, you know, one maybe somewhat unexpected uh, example that a company would be familiar with is is Walmart. Um, wasn't so clear uh, maybe five eight years ago, whether they were going to be able to respond to the threat of, of Amazon and e-commerce. And I would say today, this is an example of a large company that has been able to actually drive real change and is creating a lot of value, is really driving innovation, and is finding ways to compete in the market where which really uh, suit it. Right. So Amazon, uh, uh, Walmart realizes uh, uh, their you know, CEO, is Doug McMillan, spelled it out very clearly. That Amazon is their number one competitor, but they know they're not going to beat Amazon at their game. Right. They're not going to do the same thing. They're not going to follow their playbook. For one thing, Amazon's you know, biggest source of profit is cloud computing. That's you know, through Amazon Web Services. That's not going to be the case for Walmart. So they've got to focus on what are they uniquely good at and what are the problems around commerce, for example, that have not yet been really well solved. So one of the things that makes Walmart distinctive as a sort of a you know retailer who's selling, of course, by now online and offline, is that they have this incredible retail footprint, particularly in North America. Ninety percent of the U.S. population is within ten miles of a Walmart store. So they're building and pursuing strategies that leverage that. Right. An example of a problem they really focused on well is online ordering of groceries, right? And that's something that Amazon hadn't really solved. Others have sort of struggled with really finding a good solution. And what Walmart did well was they recognized the problem and they didn't assume that they knew what the solution would be. And they tried a variety of things and they moved quickly and they were very smart and they tested uh, 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 iteratively a lot of different approaches. So they looked at, should we just partner with someone else like DoorDash? They'll deliver it. Should we have our own delivery drivers? Should we pay? They At one point, they were uh, paying their own employees when they checked out of work, leaving a, a store, Walmart uh, a store at the end of the day, say, hey, you'll get a notification on your app and, uh, and we'll pay you a little extra if on your drive home, you drop off this delivery at somebody's home. So they tried different approaches. They tried different approaches to pricing, right? Grocery delivery is expensive. Walmart doesn't want to do this and lose money on it. They're not a VC-backed startup that can wait 10 years to, <laughs> and sort of burn through cash before they make the thing work. So they said, you know, uh, we can't do it for free. Uh, what if there's a minimum basket size? What if there's a small charge for order? What if you have a, a paid a, a, a membership, something like Amazon Prime. Uh, well, they tested all of these and they figured out which ones would work. And so they've got some customers who are, really went for Walmart Plus, their version of Amazon Prime. You pay for it, you get free grocery delivery and a lot of other benefits, both online and in the store. Uh, other customers, though, didn't want to pay at all. Uh, so they've got a minimum basket order, but then they also came up with another solution. They said, look, if you don't want to pay, how about this? We'll give you a great online ordering experience. You've got all the tools on your phone to quickly put together your order based on what you've ordered in the past, et cetera. Um, we'll put your whole order together. We'll put it in the bags. We'll have everything ready to go for you. The only thing is you do have to drive by Walmart uh, to pick up the groceries, right? You don't even have to get out of your car. We'll bring it out to your car and put it in the trunk of your car. Right? That turned out to have a good uptake. And then, of course, the pandemic hit, and that one, they call it click and collect, just blew up huge customer demand. And unlike some of the other models they were testing was very scalable because you didn't need a huge fleet of delivery people. Uh, since then, they found new innovations. Turns out there's a segment of the market that wants to pay or is willing to pay because they don't just want to have the groceries delivered to their doorstep. 
they want to have someone bring them inside. Now it's someone they know, a trusted Walmart employee who they you know, kind of like your dog walker, think of it. Uh, they come inside, they put your groceries away in the, in, in the shelves, in the freezer, in the fridge, uh, and do the whole thing for you, right? So that's been successful. That's called Walmart in-home. So the point here is they didn't start with sort of the conviction that we know best, or we're going to do a lot of sort of analysis and business planning and uh, gaming it out and decide the course of action and then just barrel ahead full throttle, which I see a lot of companies doing. Instead, they said, what's the problem we're solving? Let's try a variety of approaches to come at it and keep testing till we find something that both works for the customer, solves their need, really adds value, the customer really wants it, but also is you know, sustainable and profitable for the business. Well, it's a nice ad for Walmart in terms of their innovation, their ability to transform a traditional analog business into a digital one. Uh, what about, let's end, David, with the reverse. You probably sure. don't want to mention the name of a company, but give me an anecdote about a company that's failed, a story that really sure. well, challenges. Because <laughs> that's why people so, want to read your book. Right, right. Because most companies are not still struggling. Yeah, most companies are not following that path. So, so one of the contrasting examples I do give in the book, which we can all learn from, is is, is CNN uh, with the launch of CNN Plus. Mm. Um, and so this was kind of the traditional corporate mindset. Um, they were looking at what was going on in the digital environment. Of course, the big growth of streaming services, uh, paid streaming apps. Uh, they had seen that the legacy media players like Disney had started to get into the business, even their own sort of uh, cousin or sister company, Warner Brothers, had launched, you know, uh, uh, HBO Max, now Max. Um, and uh, they said, gee, maybe we could we, we should do this. Let's take a look uh, at having a streaming app for CNN. And they what did they do? They did a lot of planning. Right. They hired a big consulting firm. They gathered a lot of third-party data. This is very important. Not their own direct experimentation in the market, but sort of benchmarks and examples from others. Um, and then they did a lot of analysis and scenario planning, and they came up with these beautiful sounding business cases. And they said, look, we see a huge opportunity for CNN to launch a paid streaming app for news. Uh, we're going to have you know 2 million viewers within the first uh, it was a year or two, uh, uh, over 10 million within a few more years. Uh, big growth uh, opportunity, we're starting with our core, our current people who watch the television, they'll love to have this. And then we're going to go international. It's going to be big, big, big. So they did all this just planning, traditional corporate business planning, right? And then it went up to the top. And so the senior leaders have to sign off. So that was Jeff Zucker and his boss, Jason Keelar. And they loved the idea. They made public statements about this is going to be the future of news. This is going to be transformative for CNN. They have not taken a single action, right? They haven't tested a single version of this in the market. They're already completely convinced this is the future. And so they acted like it. They spent $300 million before launch. That's all this building up to day one, paying for top tier talent. Uh, putting a bunch of shows together, a huge slate of shows, recording all this material. Oh, by the way, uh, uh, they could not use any of their existing content, right? Because all their cable content was, because of contracts, could not be repurposed on the app. So they're like, no problem. This is going to work. It's definitely going to work. $300 million. They launch on day one. Well, what happened? It turned out about 1% of their existing audience uh, signed up for the paid service. And keep in mind, of course, these paid services always start with a free trial. It's not like you even have to pay. You have to be willing to sign up, create an account, 
give a credit card and say, yeah, I'll try it for whatever many days first. 1%. So it was it was a terrible result. They shut the whole thing down in about a month. Um, and that is what I see a lot of companies doing. They're still trying to follow this old traditional planning model, which really is designed to optimize and manage your legacy business that you've been in for decades and know extremely well. And they try to carry over that same process when they're pursuing new digital opportunities. And it simply does not work. Finally, David, um, it's a very interesting example. And uh, I, I commend you for talking out loud. People always want to give negative examples anonymously. And it's interesting. CNN is obviously in a, in a state of great... Um, Great, I wouldn't say crisis, but certainly uh, upheaval. What about on the political front? It, it mm. seems as if businesses are, in, are reinventing themselves, and yet politics is paralyzed. The parties are paralyzed. Old people are dominating politics on both sides of the aisle, and none of them want to get out of the business. So we have the classic bottom-up versus top-down crisis. How can political leaders... Uh, learn from your digital transformation roadmap? Well, I, I guess there's, there's always a difference, of course, between politics and, and government, although they're obviously interconnected. I, I, I think in terms of uh, political parties, I think I would say that the U.S., you know, there's great value in having um, people involved in politics and governance who have a lot of experience doesn't necessarily all have to be governmental, but there's great value in that. There's also value in having new voices and new people coming in. I think right now, you know, across the board in the U.S., we're maybe leaning too hard on those with experience and sort of tenure. And we should be creating more, you know, room for uh, folks to, you know, not come in their first year in uh, an office, be, you know, running the country, but, uh, you know, moving up that ladder, taking on authority and skills. I think governments, not just the U.S., but I have, frankly, folks from Federal Reserve Boards, from National Defense, from all kinds of government sectors will come to my programs at Columbia. I mean, they're primarily business uh, audiences and executives, but there's always folks from the public sector, and they are, frankly, dealing with all these same challenges. Uh, they tend to be organizations that are very much run top down. They're very sort of, well, let's create lots of rules and regulations and procedures to, you know, cover your, you know, what, CYA. Um, and rather than giving people sort of the sense that, you know what, this is your department, this is your division, you can make a difference. What are we here for? We're trying to meet a specific need in society and let's move quicker. And Jennifer Polka has a great book that came out this year, Recoding America, mm. looking at- Riley's wife. Yeah, in terms of how and why governments struggle to really take advantage of the capabilities of digital tools and technologies um, and put them to work as fast as they could be doing so much faster to really create value for citizens and society. So I think I see it very much on the government side as well.